Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Is this thing on? I think it is. I think it is. Hello. Welcome to Dark Boutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me across the table is uh, Matthew, father of Steve. How are you? I am good. How are you, sir? I, I'm in a very good mood. Did you, you did you have a good epiphany last week? A good epiphany? <laughs> oh, oh, that's some religious was, thing, right? Yeah, I think it was Thursday. It was epiphany day. Yeah, I don't... Did you have an epiphany? I hadn't... I think the only epiphany I might have had on that day was I should sell my turnips in Animal Crossing because they were 167 <laughs> bells. In you the, and Animal Crossing. It, it's amazing. I love it. And there's been an upgrade recently... So, yeah, I love Animal Crossing. You're funny. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Don't stop poutining. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of journey. You're, uh, yeah, we'll see why as we go. <laughs> Matthew Charles Lamb was a troubled and disturbed youngster. He was born in Windsor, Ontario, unwanted, to a teenage mother and bounced from one relative's home to another, never having close relationships with any of them. To him, they were merely his keepers. The rules laid out for him to follow were bothersome. To young Matt, he was incorrigible. He became violent early on, Many of the other kids in his family and the neighborhood were terrified of him. After a number of run-ins with local police and several violent incidents involving firearms, one including a shootout with police, Matthew Charles Lamb was jailed in Kingston, Penn for the first time. He was just 16. At 18 years old, only days after an early release, Matthew Charles Lamb went on a shooting spree in Windsor, 
killing two strangers and wounding two more. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 202, Mad or Malingering, The Crimes of Matthew Charles Lamb. Windsor, Ontario sits just across the river from the Motor City, Detroit, Michigan. The two cities are so closely tied that many Windsor residents cheer for the Red Wings rather than the Maple Leafs. Oh well, I can see why. Today, Windsor's population is somewhere around 230,000, with another 100,000 residents in the Windsor metro region. It is the third largest city in southwestern Ontario after London and Kitchener. Just like Detroit, for a long time, Windsor's main industry has been the automotive industry, and it has been called the Automotive Capital of Canada. When the first Europeans arrived in the 17th century, the Detroit River region was inhabited by the Huron, Odawa, Potawatomi, and Iroquois First Nations. Do you know why I sang Don't Stop Poutining when, when we started? I have suspicions because we sort of talked about it a little. So Journey's song, mm. Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. You know, it goes, just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, there is no South Detroit. South Detroit is actually Windsor, Ontario. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so Detroit is Detroit and Windsor is like just like oddly it's windsor city to the south of america yes you know which doesn't happen very often except unless you're under anchorage yeah um yeah so uh friends and i when that song came out we we referred to windsor as south detroit well i drove through south detroit then when i there you go drove over the bridge and uh went into windsor from the america yeah so yeah windsor's just at the tip of the elephant trunk and what's the elephant trunk well if you Take a map of southwestern Ontario and Mm -hmm. turn it 90 degrees sideways. Okay. It's the shape of an elephant. Okay. And Owen Sound is the rectum. Oh. And which is a bit unfair to Owen Sound because my aunt and uncle and my cousin Sarah and her and her husband and and my cousin live there. It's a lovely little town actually. But um, it's the rectum and Windsor is the the tip of the trunk. Wow. Mm. The rectum. Barely knew him. According to TripAdvisor, there are some popular things to do in Windsor. They suggest visitors should tour the historic riverfront, which should include a trip to Dieppe Gardens, a park dedicated to those soldiers who lost their lives in one of Canada's darkest days during the Second World War. So do you remember um, back when we did the um, Korean conflict episode, Mike? I do remember that we did that, yes. And uh, we talked about my grandfather, who is at the Battle of Dieppe. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Essex Scottish Regiment from Windsor actually lost the most soldiers in that battle. That's why the park is in Windsor. Wow. Because Windsor actually lost a lot of men. Just point of interest there for you. Interesting. So do you know how many people... From Windsor were lost? Do you have a, like an estimate? A couple thousand. Oh, wow. Like in a few hours. Wow. Yeah. If airplanes are your thing, Windsor is home to the Canadian Aviation Museum, which is located in the main hangar of the old Number 7 Elementary Flying Training School at the southwest corner of Windsor International Airport. There you can see restorations of the Avro Lancaster and de Havilland Mosquito and much more related to Canadian aviation history. Or if you want to learn more about the nature in the area, there's always the Ojibwe Park, which is the hub of activity at the Ojibwe Prairie Complex, 
Most visitors initially visit here before exploring other regions of the complex. Ojibwe Park features an excellent nature center and several well-kept self-guiding nature trails on which visitors can discover and learn more about the ecology of the pin oak forest, savanna, and tall grass prairie habitats. As of 2020, Windsor ranked 49th overall in McLean's Magazine's list of Canada's most dangerous places, so not high on that list. All in all, and this is by no means a bad thing, Windsor is pretty much an average Canadian city. It was this way in the mid-20th century as well when the events mentioned in this episode took place. The 49th most dangerous place in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of giggled to myself when I wrote that. <laughs> okay. So I want to say something to the listeners. I think of Dark Poutine. Mike and I are kind of like the uh, anti-tourism Canada agency. Yeah. Well. Because our stories are about the dark side, right? Yeah. And well, maybe for like dark tourism, yes. But actually the, the country is pretty safe, yes, right? We yeah. don't have, we have problems, but compared to many other countries in the world, we don't. So like 49th most dangerous, just to give everyone, like it's probably like, 300 under Boise, Idaho. Okay. Right. Oh, no, Boise is probably like far more dangerous than that <laughs> compared to Windsor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's why I sort of wrote it the way I did, because yeah. I want people to know that it, it is just an average town, ev- yeah. town yeah. Canadian town. Yeah. It is not, uh, it doesn't stand out in the way of crime at no. all. Doesn't stand out kind of in any way. Well, that's not fair to the people of Windsor, the good folks oh, of the Windsor. Oh, the Windsor, my parents lived in Windsor. Yes. During the Detroit riots, they sat and ate popcorn and watched Detroit burn across the water. Oh, wow. Yeah, but, literally their houses on the water, they sat there and like ate popcorn and watched the army tanks going down the roads. Because it's literally right, like, it's it's hard to, it's weird to think there's just, there's a bridge. Yeah. And you stand there and there's Detroit on the other side, America. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, it's like here. Like... <laughs> what? White Rock, you look at. White Rock, you look at. Um... Somewhere in the US. Well, uh, Roberts. Point Roberts. Point yeah. Roberts, which oh, is actually yeah. a little weird. Spit. Yeah, they should have just changed the border. Right? Just, right, just go. Because like, it's all, literally, it's like, it's like a. 50 square miles of America and this peninsula that the rest of it is Canada. It's really strange. Yeah, it is. Matthew Charles Matt Lamb was born on the 5th of January, 1948. His 15-year-old mother did not want him and could not care for him, so she left him to relatives who didn't seem to care much about him either. He was a burden from the beginning. Matt had never met his father and knew only that the man had died in the United States at some point when Matthew was still a child. He barely saw his mother growing up, although he spent most of his time with his maternal grandmother and her second husband at the home on York Street in the south-central neighborhood of Windsor. He did end up in homes of other relatives from time to time for one reason or another. He even landed in foster care on more than one occasion. Matt later claimed that his step-granddad regularly beat him and called him a little bastard. As a result, Matthew did not have much attachment to the other human beings in his life. According to author William Toffin's book on Matthew Lamb, Watching the Devil Dance, quote, Lamb metaphorically expressed his indifference toward people as everyone else appearing as bugs to him, end quote. 
Today, perhaps someone like Matthew might be diagnosed with Reactive Attachment Disorder, or RAD, which, according to the Mayo Clinic's website, is, quote, a rare but serious condition in which an infant or young child doesn't establish healthy attachments with parents or caregivers. Reactive attachment disorder may develop if the child's basic needs for comfort, affection, and nurturing aren't met and loving, caring, stable attachments with others are not established. The site continues, Reactive attachment disorder can start in infancy. There is little research on signs and symptoms of reactive attachment disorder beyond early childhood, and it remains uncertain whether it occurs in children older than five years. Signs and symptoms may include unexplained withdrawal, fear, sadness, or irritability, sad and listless appearance, not seeking comfort or showing no response when comfort is given, failure to smile, watching others closely but not engaging in social interaction, failing to ask for support or assistance, failure to reach out when picked up, no interest in playing peekaboo or other interactive games, end quote. By the accounts I have read, this seems to be what others observe with young Matthew Lamb. He was a relatively quiet kid who seemed to have issues concentrating for extended periods. Socially, before the other kids realized the stigma of Matthew's status as having been born out of wedlock, they would try to engage him in play and social activities. Matt seemed disinterested. Once his background was uncovered, though, the bullying began, usually taking the forms of both psychological and physical abuse at the hands of his peers in class as teachers looked on relatively disinterested. As the adults didn't seem to want to step in to help, Matt started fighting back, too sometimes exploding and viciously beating those taunting him. As a result, according to Watching the Devil Dance, Matthew began showing tendencies toward violence very young. In the book, Toffin mentions a childhood acquaintance of Matthew's, Gregory Sweet, who was seemingly Matt's closest and only friend throughout his life. Sweet recalled Matthew as cruel, terrorizing his younger cousins, and in one incident keeping them prisoner in a clothes closet. At one point, one male cousin required hospitalization after a beating administered by Matt Lamb. Sweet also recalled being present at another disturbing incident when Matthew, who was seven at the time, forced a smaller child to eat dog poop at knife point while Matthew watched laughing. As he grew, Matthew got angrier. He was a volcano of pent-up rage waiting to blow. He was obsessed with violence and was enamored with guns. He learned to shoot at around 12 years old. Matthew had a growing interest in fascism, racist rhetoric, and the ideals of Adolf Hitler and his Nazis. He even went as far as writing to American Nazi Party leader George Lincoln Rockwell and had attempted to join the Ku Klux Klan at one point. Around the same time, Matt also discovered alcohol and loved getting loaded. But when he did, his recklessness and propensity for violence increased exponentially. He was drunk as much as he could be, often acquiring his booze from a local bootlegger. He dropped out of school in grade 10. In a Windsor Star article written years later, Gregory Sweet, his pal, spoke to reporter Tony Wanless. Quote, He was a mean kid, said Greg Sweet, formerly of Windsor. As a kid, he always carried knives, and by the time he was 13, he always had a gun with him. He continued, We always had guns. From the time we were about 12 years old, Matthew used to make guns and bombs all the time. Quite a few times he would fire them off once in the locker room at Assumption High School, 
but never got caught. Lamb once walked down the street firing a shotgun at the houses of people he didn't like, and another time exploded a bomb made from an old 50 caliber aircraft machine gun bullet, which blew shrapnel into his own leg. In each incident, police weren't notified and didn't become involved, he added. In contrast to these reports of Matthew's antisocial behavior, others said that even though Matt was shy, he could be quite charming at times. He could be funny, even likable and chatty. But it was Matt Lamb's volatility that typically cut any friendship short. One never knew when he was going to go off and direct his anger at them. Matt got into the first of his bigger jackpots in early 1964. On February 10th of that year, Constable Donald Graham of the Riverside Police Department was chatting with a fellow officer outside the Riverside Arena, where inside there was a teen Valentine's Day dance. 16-year-old Matt Lamb appeared, walked up to Constable Graham, and without provocation punched the cop in the face. As Matthew was not a large boy, the two officers easily subdued him. In his pockets, the officers found a dog chain, brass knuckles, and a knife. Matthew was charged with assaulting a police officer. According to William Toffin's Watching the Devil Dance, quote, Lamb was subsequently convicted for assault under the Juvenile Delinquents Act and was sentenced to six months incarceration at the House of Concord, a juvenile facility operated by the Salvation Army, which stressed Christian principles and ethical teachings for wayward boys. It was the first time Lamb had come to the attention of police and courts. His six months of rehabilitation were marked by total indifference and lack of interest in making any positive behavioral changes, end quote. Matthew's anger continued to simmer. He bragged that he had a collection of bullets on which he'd written the names of police officers whom he claimed he wanted to shoot. On Christmas Eve of 1964, boiled over again. Matthew was drunk and angry. From a Windsor Star article by reporter Bob Sutton, quote, Lamb smashed the front window of Lakeview Marine and Equipment, 137 Lesperance Road, and was seen to take a double-barreled shotgun and three revolvers. Within minutes, he had fired two shots at Constable Cal Miller and a co-owner of the store from a nearby Tecumseh field. The OPP constable returned the fire into the darkness and Lamb walked forward with his hands up, saying, Don't shoot, I surrender. He was to serve 14 months in Kingston Prison during which there was an assault on a fellow prisoner that put Lamb in solitary confinement for an extended period. Lamb later told psychiatrist, quote, I didn't like being alone in the hole. It does things to a person, End quote. According to all reports, Matt Lamb was not well after getting out of solitary. He was even more detached and angry. He landed in a psychiatric ward after a guard found him on the floor of his cell using a broom handle to sodomize himself and another incident, while assigned to janitorial duties, he was seen by a guard with the handle of a mop he'd been using in his rectum. Apparently he was walking around with the mop in his bum and mopping as he went and laughing. And the broom as well. Grab that broom and sweep out of that closet, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were suspicions by his psychiatrist that perhaps uh, he might have been bisexual. So, or broom sexual, at least broom sexual, <laughs> mop sexual, mop sexual, mop fetishist. Well, you know, whatever floats your boat, as long as no one else is getting hurt. Exactly. 
Yeah. Or if you, if the, if somebody else is getting hurt, you have a safe word. Is that? Well, I hope you got permission from the mop. From the mop. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that mop was consenting. I don't think the mop consented. No. Matt Lamb laughed the incidents off, just like we just did. But his jailers were concerned for his mental health. A psychiatrist at the prison was not sure if Matt was malingering, feigning symptoms of insanity. He was clearly depressed, talked incessantly about fantasies involving murder, and was obsessed with firearms. His mental state was described as borderline and marginal. Regardless of all that, on June 9, 1966, after serving only 14 months of his two-year sentence, Matt Lamb was released back into society and was put on a bus, returning to Windsor, where he would live with his uncle Stanley, who lived at 1912 Ford Boulevard. But if he wanted to live there, Matt was to keep his nose clean and get a job. Only days after his release from the Kingston Penitentiary, Matthew Charles Lamb exploded in a spree of murderous violence. And we'll take a break right here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back. What are your thoughts on Matthew Charles Lamb, who actually has the same spelling? I know, Matthew, I, I don't as you like do. That. Yeah. When I saw you put you when, when you sent me the script, and I'm like, he misspelled Matthew. I was like, no, that's the. I actually looked it up. Damn, it's the same spelling as mine. Yep. Um, my thoughts from what you just said. Uh, if society wants to create a totally not well-adjusted human being, yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, right there. That but, that's the perfect story. So look look at that. Mm -hmm. It's it's practically the manual on on how to create a screwed up person. So parents don't care. Yeah. Not around. Moved around to different people of his life. So the total lack of stability, total lack of security, mm -hmm. abused at home. Yeah. Right? Add to that the old social doggy being being quote a bastard child out of wedlock. I'm I am well aware with of that, that one myself. Make, makes him feel less than, which mm -hmm. is just a whole like looking back, this is the seventies. Like, mm -hmm. I can remember that, right? I can remember, ooh, people... Well, looked, this was the 60s, this was Sorry, 60s, but it went well into the 70s. People looked down at kids that were born out of wedlock, and, and they had the shame put on them, which was just ho uh, horrible, horrible, mm -hmm. hor like, you know this. I was one. Horrible thing to do, yep. right? I had other kids in our neighborhood tell me that, remind me, 
It's ridiculous. That my parents were not my real, it's quote ridiculous. unquote, real parents. Ridiculous. And you still see it like uh, adoption is still played in a really weird way in, in media. Yeah. Uh, look at the movie the Problem Child. There's always like, they're pointing at like an adoptive child. No, yeah, like sad. the parents who adopt the child are that person's parents. Okay. There's no need to say so first, that this person was adopted. It's not fucking new. Yeah, it's and, not and, news. And he wasn't adopted, but you know, out of what, like, who cares? Like pe right. people have sex, people can get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Right. And if a kid's adopted, a, a smart person who thought I can't give this child the best life, which was my birth mom, put that kid up for adoption in probably painfully, but yes. but made the decision that she or he felt was right. Yeah. And then two other beautiful people yep. took a kid in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Um, so anyway, so there's that dogma and then there's the school bullying, all this stuff, yep. like that, that social overlay and then the, 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 the missing father and then the missing mother and then the school bullies and the teachers that didn't care probably because he was quote a bastard child from the wrong side of the tracks. This is a, this is a perfect recipe for somebody who's not going to do well. And this is the thing, like I look back at my life because uh, I've analyzed it quite heavily because I've had to. Um, and I look at, had I not had the stability that I did mm -hmm. in the home that I was brought up in, I probably would not have done so well in no, life. And okay. And then I want to say something about this attraction to the Nazis and the KKK or whatever. Sure. It, honestly, it's no surprise. I'm I'm a true believer that racism has nothing nothing to do with the traits of the people that a racist doesn't like. It has everything to do with that person feeling less than sure, and everything to do with it's about power. It's a it's a dark hole of refuge for the weak and the weak minded. Yeah, to have some sort of claim of victory or superiority. Yeah, just by being a race. Yeah, um, and it, it it's, it's truly it's it's a dark hole for people who are just losers in my mind. Yeah, well, I got nothing else, so I might as well be happy to be a white man. That's exactly it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's pathetic. So, but all of that being said, mm -hmm. and you know this, like I don't care what happened to you as a kid. Yeah. As an adult, you take responsibility for what yeah, you do. Exactly. You but where does that? Where does? Where does? Where does adulthood begin? And I mean, that's that's another whole. Uh, debate that we should probably not be the ones having. Begins at 12. Does it? Yeah. I don't know if it does. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Take responsibility. Yeah. I don't know, but this guy's what? In his, well, in his 20s now. Come on. He was 18 when he committed the murder. Oh, was he 18? I yeah. can't do math. Yeah. Close enough. He's an adult. Yeah. Anyway. Lamb got an apprentice position at a local woodworking shop but seemed unhappy there. On Saturday, June 25th, 1966, he left work early, arriving home in the mid-afternoon. According to Toffin's book, Matt was going to babysit his preteen cousins that evening, but he set about getting drunk instead, guzzling eight bottles of beer over the next few hours. Matthew put the kids to bed, watching a war movie on TV, and then went to bed himself around 9 p.m. He laid there for a while, and sometime before 10, he got out of bed. His brain was whirling. He grabbed his uncle's double-barreled 16-gauge shotgun, put on his coat, and stuffed his pockets full of ammunition. He headed out into the summer night to wander around Windsor with murder on his mind. 
That is so bizarre. Yeah. How do you go from babysitting? Okay, gonna sleep. Uh, no, actually, I'm gonna go out and kill people. The thing that was pointed to yeah. in a lot of his psychiatric examinations mm. was the fact that he was watching a violent movie before he went to bed. So he was drunk, number one, which was the thing apparently that uh, was typical of him. He would get violent when he was drunk and watched a war movie. Who knows? Probably thought, well, that looks fun. Please. What? What? Look. Let's blame video games. I'm gonna blame. Yeah, I'm gonna exactly. blame everything bad you do on that barnyard game that you do. Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing. There is zero death or destruction. No, you're gonna be like stealing turnips or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You're gonna be like a turnip thief because because they cost fifteen stars or whatever bells. But I wouldn't. I I would. <laughs> you just corrected me. I don't actually care. I know you don't. But uh, this is the thing. Like. I think he was just that type of person. He wanted to go kill people. Exactly. It's something that he you clearly you was fantasizing go, oh, about. I watched a war movie. I mean, do you know how many people I would have murdered from the number of like horror movies I've yeah. watched? Yeah. And if you can't hold your liquor, stop drinking. Yeah, right. Like take responsibility for yeah. your life. Yeah. Six people, all strangers to Matthew Lamb, had been out and about enjoying each other's company that evening. Edith Tchaikovsky, 20, her 22-year-old brother Kenneth, his wife Charmaine, who was more than eight months pregnant, and three of their friends, 21-year-old Andrew Wollock, Vincent Franco, and Don Mulesa, were all headed toward a bus stop at Tecumseh Road. At 10.18 p.m., as the group passed the home at 1864 Ford Boulevard, they could hear a party was happening inside. There were lots of cars parked on the street around the residence. As the six young people got to 1872 Ford Boulevard, the adjacent property, Matthew Lamb suddenly leapt out from behind a tree pointing something at them. They thought it might be a stick or something at first. Hands up, Matt yelled. The group, thinking perhaps he was just a pickled party-goer playing a prank, ignored him and continued forward. Lamb opened fire at close range with a single blast from the shotgun hitting Edith Tchaikovsky, who flew into the front yard where she then lay bleeding badly from a gaping gunshot wound. The rest of the group made moves to run, but Matt yelled, Stop! Don't move, any of you! Without another word, Lamb fired again, this time dropping Andrew Woolock, a local hockey player and wounding Kenneth Jaikoski, who fled screaming toward the home where the party was ongoing. From the Windsor Star, quote, When Mr. Tchaikovsky ran into the party at 1864 Ford Boulevard, a 25th wedding anniversary celebration for Mr. and Mrs. Leo Succio of that address, celebrants thought he was crashing the party. The shots sounded like firecrackers and the merrymakers had assumed this was the cause. They saw that he was injured. Police and ambulances were summoned, and quote, Charmaine and Vincent soon took refuge nearby. After the second shot, Matthew Lamb fled across the street toward 1867 Ford Boulevard and up the driveway of that property toward the rear of the house. At that point, Don Mulesa was leaning over Edith, who was gravely injured. He later told reporters that Edith appeared to be trying to speak, but Mulesa could not understand what she was trying to say. Across the street, a resident at 1867 Ford Boulevard, Grace Dunlop, 19, had come to the screen door at the back of her parents' home to investigate having heard what she thought might be firecrackers. When she encountered Matt Lamb, he leveled the shotgun at her, 
and fired, hitting the young woman in the abdomen on her right side, badly injuring her. From the Windsor Star, David Deersley, 22, of 1250 Ouellette Avenue, fiancé of Ms. Dunlop, was in the basement preparing fishing nets when he heard the three shots. She screamed she had been hit. We thought there were firecrackers. I pulled her so she wouldn't be shot again. I picked her up and put her on the kitchen floor and put towels around her to stop the bleeding. I saw no one at all, Mr. Deersley said. Two minutes after the mayhem had begun, it was over, and Matt Lamb had fled into the night. Police and ambulances were dispatched, and the victims of the shootings were taken to Metropolitan Hospital. Two blocks away west and just north from the initial shooting spree, at 1793 Westminster Boulevard, the older woman who lived there, Ms. Ann Heaton, answered a knock at her screen door at her back porch. It was Matthew Lamb and his shotgun. Heaton spoke to the Windsor Star. Quote, I turned on the entrance light and he was standing there just a few feet away, pointing the shotgun right at me. He said he was going to shoot me. Mrs. Heaton stepped back into the living room where she had been watching television peacefully just seconds before. I called to my husband, Forrest, who was sleeping in the rear bedroom, to get his gun and call police. The youth just stood there, looking scared. The gun was still pointed at me and he was about four feet away. I was never so scared in my life. Mrs. Heaton said the youth then turned and ran from the house and across a field in the rear of her home, which separates Westminster from Norman Street, end quote. Matt had lain there in the field for some time. He later admitted to having a plan to ambush police after Ann Heaton called them, but luckily she never called. Matt got tired of waiting. He left his gun and ammo behind right there in the field. He then went back home to his uncle's place, crawled into bed, and went to sleep. Outside, only blocks away, police were in a frenzy, searching everywhere for the shooter. Edith Tchaikovsky succumbed to her massive gunshot wound at 5.30 a.m. the next morning. She'd fought hard to stay alive, but the injury had shredded her internally. Stanley Hasketh, Matt's uncle, returned home in the wee hours of the next morning. He could not help but note the cops scouring the neighborhood and the local radio stations reporting continually about the shootings and ongoing search for the perpetrator. On finding shotgun shells strewn about the kitchen and his shotgun missing from its case, Stanley immediately thought that young Matthew was most likely the culprit. Stanley woke his still-sleeping nephew, who, according to William Toffins watching The Devil Dance, eventually admitted he was, quote, probably responsible for having shot some people, end quote. Matt didn't seem to care at all about what he'd done, but was weakly apologetic to his uncle for causing him grief. Stanley was afraid of his nephew at that point. Not knowing where the shotgun was, Stanley thought better of raising the alarm right away. He called police later from a payphone, and Matt Lamb was arrested at 3 p.m. that afternoon at his grandmother's home without incident. When the cops entered, the suspected young killer was sitting on a recliner in the living room, watching TV and drinking a beer. That morning, as police were canvassing the neighborhood, they spoke with Ann Heaton, who told them of her run-in with the shooter. She pointed to the field and the direction in which the good-looking, skinny young men had run. After a quick search of the area, cops found Matthew's shotgun and a neat row of unused shotgun shells in the grass field near the Heaton home. That Monday, Matthew Charles Lamb was arraigned on a single charge of capital murder in the death of Edith Tchaikovsky. On the way into court, 
Matt attempted to escape custody and, when restrained, begged the officers to shoot him. Matthew Lamb was remanded for psychiatric examination by Magistrate Gordon R. Stewart, QC, as requested by Assistant Crown Attorney Henry Mamotia. Another court appearance was scheduled for later in the week. Begged to be shot. Yeah. What a drama queen. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Shoot me. Yeah. Honestly, when people do that, like when murderers do that crap, Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, you're not going to get away so easily. Well, it actually shows how truly weak they really are. It's like time to face the music for what you did to those poor people, you selfish, selfish person. Yeah, right? Right? Like they're just people who are out having a good time. Walking down the street with your sister and boom. Yeah. Right? No, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. I always laugh when they do that because it just shows how bloody weak they are. Matthew's behavior seemed odd after that. He laughed off his murder charge during a psychiatric interview at Kingston Penitentiary. He could not sit still, intermittently getting up and pacing around the room, giggling to himself. Matt was now claiming he could not remember the shootings. He was deemed not fit to stand trial and was sent to Penetanguishing Mental Health Center for a minimum of 30 days observation and treatment. In his next interviews, Matt now claimed he recalled the shootings, but they'd felt like they were far away. He was again determined unfit to stand trial. Grace Dunlop was recovering, less one kidney, and Kenneth Tchaikovsky, who'd been hit in the hip and one arm, was also on the mend. It was not so for Andrew Wallach, who'd endured massive internal injuries as the result of the shotgun blast to his abdomen. He too died of his wounds in the afternoon of July 11, 1966. A second charge of capital murder was added to the first already made against the 18-year-old. If found guilty of one or both, the mandatory sentence at the time was death. After another month, the all-clear was given by Matt Lamb's doctors. They decided that he was now fit to undergo trial for the murders. The trial began on October 8, 1966, with Matthew Lamb pleading not guilty to the capital murder of Edith Tchaikovsky and Andrew Woolock. His lawyer then opened his mental disorder defense under Section 562 of the Canadian Criminal Code. The prosecution was first up and laid out their theory that Matthew Lamb had set out fully intending to commit murder on June 25, 1966. They pointed to his cool, nonchalant demeanor during his arrest and that his psychiatric issues seemed only to manifest when it benefited him. During the proceedings, when a witness mentioned that Matthew had giggled during a psychiatric interview, as if on cue, he giggled again. According to Saul Nazanchuk, Matthew's lawyer, in his article Revisiting the Insanity Defense, the Capital Murder Trial of Matthew Charles Lamb, Matthew was the picture of a very sick and tortured young man who had no idea what he was doing during the killings. Three psychiatrists from Penetanguishene were called by Nozinchuk. George Darby told the court that in his conversations with Lamb, the defendant had changed this story three times. He considered Lamb to be antisocial, aggressive, and psychopathic unable to appreciate the incident's consequences with any depth of feeling. Elliot Barker then testified that Lamb had told him in an interview that he treated all people like bugs, except for his uncle and grandmother. Killing a human being, Barker told the court, meant nothing more to Lamb than swatting a fly. Barry Boyd then confirmed that Barker had said and quoted something Lamb had told him in an interview, quote, I hate everybody on the street. 
I probably will kill someone else before I die. It doesn't bother me. It's like killing a bug. End quote. On January 20, 1967, in his closing statement, Saul Nozinchuk said, quote, Here was a young teenager who had a glaring defect in his capacity to feel or appreciate what he was doing. Here was a young teenager living in a fantasy or dream world unconnected with reality. Here was a teenager who was insane at the time of the shootings. End quote. The Crown Prosecutor, Eugene Duchesne, QC, countered, quote, Would slick con artists have a field day in striving to be classified as insane and not criminally responsible? Would the shrewd psychopathic criminal have a much easier time in the hospital for the mentally ill than in a federal penitentiary? End quote. Justice Stark then reviewed the evidence and advised the jury that, in his opinion, the weight of the psychiatric evidence favored the defense, but reminded them it was up to them to decide the young man's fate. The jury was out for two and a half hours before they returned to give their verdict that evening. In their opinion, Matthew Charles Lamb was not guilty by reason of insanity. Matt did not react at all to the verdict. Would you react to a verdict? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't know either. Yeah. Because people are, people always focus on what the reaction was, right? Right. But it's like, okay, if you've gone through the entire machinations, yeah, right, of a long court case, yeah, you, your lawyer might have said, you know what, you're effed, right? Yeah. Like so. But he wasn't effed. He was. He got off because he was not criminally responsible yeah, you're you're was... after you're not after whatever but i don't know i i find it interesting that we're always obsessed with the first reaction mm -hmm. um, but i'm not sure if it can tell us anything so as i went through this as i wrote i did a lot of reading about you know what went on at the trial and it's really interesting like the crown attorney pointed it out in his closing arguments like this guy was a, a liar yeah and was just now, I'm not an analyst, psychologist. Neither of us are. But some, like, some of the stuff from what you read here yeah. seems like he was faking stuff. Right. Like it seems a little bit, oh, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to like wander around and laugh in the room. Like that's not what people with problems tend to do. Well, he did talk about hearing voices and all that kind of stuff. But, 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 he's, not, he, but, he's, not, but he's not a schizophrenic. No. Right? He's not. Nope. So, and if you're not, you don't hear voices. No. Right? <laughs> no, he was a psychopath. Yeah. And it later diagnosed a psychopath. So here's the thing. If he's a psychopath, mm -hmm. and that's it, a psychopath with some personality disorders, which lead him to murder, mm -hmm. that is essentially the story for most of serial murders anyway, most, and they're not insane. So my, how come he's my, insane? Most CEOs I know are psychopaths. I know a few, yeah. And they yep. don't murder people. Yeah, no, they don't. Right. But, but they're, and this is the thing, he gets into I, it later my, on. My current CEO, I just have to add here, is not a psychopath. Oh, okay, because he probably <laughs> listens to the show. <laughs> but he's a very, very nice guy. Actually. Oh, there you yeah. go. So, way to suck <laughs> up. I, I need, well, no, it's not <laughs> sucking up. I'm just like, wait a minute. Yeah. Not all CEOs are psychopaths. I've met a few who are. Right? I have too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I have too. And uh, it, the corporate environment is the kind of place where that type of person is going to thrive because you just plow through no matter what people feel. That's right. To get the business done. To get the stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tough because 
hiring that type of person for that kind of role helps the business. It's crazy. Well, you usually don't hire them. Usually they've clawed their ways to the top. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) But anyway, so if you're going to put this psychopath in a hospital, Mm. probably just because he's 18 and not 30. Yeah. Why aren't all psychopaths in the hospital instead of jail? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's, this is where it gets very, very difficult. And we'll never have the answer to this. I think we, I think we stumble along. I, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, we, we've, we claim ourselves to be this very advanced society, mm-hmm. but we still don't understand ourselves to the point where nobody, let's, nobody, let's, nobody let's put this person, themselves. let's put this person in a cage yeah. because we don't understand what created that person, uh, what led that person to the point that they yeah. did the things that well, they and the did. The person has to be away from people because he's dangerous. Right. But I also want to know how he got there. So and, if there's anything that we can learn as a society to, can, to, to, to not go there anymore. Right. But, and, and can you fix these people once they're there? Some people say no, hmm. you know? But I know some people who have done some pretty bad things who are really good people today. So, yeah, you know, people can, you know, I was talking about somebody that I met once Mm -hmm. who was a a addict sex worker Mm -hmm. on the east side of Vancouver. Sure. Yep. Um, I know a few of those. Is now a, a nurse. Right. And not, I'm not equating being a sex worker and addict to like a psychopath. No. But people can lift themselves out of things. Yeah. They can. I know people who have murdered. Yeah. And are now productive members of society. Do you? I do. Not me. Mm. Well. I haven't. You will. No, I won't. (laughs) Can you imagine if I did and then you did an episode about me? You'd have to, you'd need a new co-host. Yeah, because I will I'm not, not. I will not murder anyone so that I can keep co-hosting. Yeah, so we're not doing. You're not being the co-host over the phone, like <laughs> like Adnan from. from <laughs> okay, Mike. I'm at the payphone. I only have ten minutes. Quick. Exactly. <laughs> With the warden standing over me. You're receiving a call from Kent Institution. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that would be an interesting. Well, it probably would be an interesting podcast. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. But let's not go there. No, let's not. I'm do dedicated that. to the show, but not that dedicated. I to appreciate the show. that. <laughs> I appreciate you, Mike. Matthew Lamb then went from the courtroom back to Penetanguishene. There, he was placed in the hospital's maximum security unit at Oak Ridge, where he would stay indefinitely pending an order from the Ontario Executive Council determining he was safe to return to society. It was the 1960s and there were some interesting methods being undertaken in the name of psychiatry at the time under the supervision of Dr. Elliot Barker, the head of Oak Ridge's therapeutic division. According to Total Encounters, The Life and Times of the Mental Health Center Penetanguishene by Robert F. Nielsen, in August 1968, the unit created a Total Encounter capsule, which was a windowless, soundproof room 8 feet, 2.4 meters wide, and 10 feet, 3 meters long, with green painted walls, a green wall-to-wall mat on the floor, and a ceiling containing a one-way mirror. It was empty apart from a sink and a lavatory. 
In one of the earliest uses of videotape in therapy, television cameras were trained through the mirrored ceiling and through built-in holes in the walls. Liquid nourishment was provided through drinking straws that were built into the door. The capsule's purpose, Barker writes, was to provide, quote, a place of undisturbed security where a small group of patients could focus on issues they felt important enough to warrant the exclusion of the usual physical and psychological distractions. Though participation in the STU program was required, entering the capsule was voluntary, and each patient could choose how many days he spent inside. Groups numbered between two and seven stayed in the room for as little as 24 hours or for sustained periods as long as 11 days. Because Barker believed that they were more inclined to reveal their inner selves if unclothed, the inmates entered the capsule naked. To further encourage communication, they were administered with LSD-25. The room was lit at all times, making day indistinguishable from night. While members of the program were inside the capsule, other patients operated the room and watched over those inside, running the cameras, keeping records, and maintaining an appropriate room temperature. Matthew was Barker's star student and appeared to be responding well. In 1973, Matthew was determined safe to return to society. Dr. Barker was not ready to let Matthew set out on his own quite yet and took him to live on the 200-acre farm he owned where he lived with his family. Matthew admitted that he was a psychopath and that he had come, quote, to terms with it. The book Mask of Sanity by Hervey M. Cleckley, an early work in the field of psychopathic study, had apparently had a profound effect on the young man who claimed he now wanted to do something more with his life. Matthew first attempted to join the Israeli military at the outset of the Yom Kippur War in late 1973. He was rejected by them because he had been diagnosed a psychopath. He was, however, soon accepted by the Rhodesian Armed Forces in Zimbabwe, who were engaged in a fight for the country against Robert Mugabe, communist-backed black nationalist guerrillas. Matt did well in the Rhodesian Armed Forces and became a member of their elite Special Air Service SAS unit in September 1975. On November 7, 1976, Lance Corporal Matthew Lamb, 28, was killed during a battle, but not by enemy fire. A comrade of Lamb's was startled by a figure suddenly running across the soldier's line of sight between Lamb and a riverbed. The other soldier reflexively swung his rifle around and fired. Matthew Lamb was mortally wounded by two errant shots through the chest. He collapsed, face down in the dirt. One of the bullets that hit him exited through the back of his body, smashing the radio he had been carrying. He died almost instantly. Lamb's death was officially recorded as killed in action, with no reference to friendly fire. A hero's funeral was held for Matthew Lamb in Salisbury, since renamed Harare after Mugabe's forces took control of the country. From the Associated Press, quote, The coffin was conveyed by gun carriage to a lonely cemetery on the outskirts of Salisbury, where members of the Rhodesian Light Infantry fired three volleys of shots before the cremation. No members of Lamb's family were present. End quote. Matthew Lamb's ashes were then shipped back to Windsor, where he was buried beside his maternal grandmother. Some people, including the Tchaikovsky family, 
did not mourn for Matthew Lamb. They'd been terrified of another occurrence of his violence after his release and were relieved to learn of his passing. Yeah, I mean, you can't really blame them, I guess, right? He created a nightmare for them, so... Yeah, right. and what's interesting is he says that he read the book Mask of... Uh, the Mask of Sanity, mm. which is a book about psychopaths, and it was written around that time. So it was the the story of the day as far as treatment or a look at a psychopath. And he said that that book is what changed him because psychopathic people can have normal lives. Okay, joining the Rhodesian army isn't a normal life though. Exactly. And this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm like saying. That is not a normal life. The, he, hey, I'm going to try to to join the Israeli army. I mean, I'm rejected from that. Because I'm a psychopath. Get on you, Israel. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, like, as much as Mugabe's a dick and I'd like psychopaths going after him, mm -hmm. um, that's just, that is not a normal life. No. So he, his idea of a normal life was, well, I want to kill people. So I'll join an army. So I'll join an army where I can kill people where an act of war is happening. That was, that was his idea. Strange. Um, I did not know that you could join foreign armies. Yes, you can. And hmm. th there was a bit of debate about him having a, a passport and being able to leave the country to join a foreign army He's and kill people. He's not the best representative of Canada, no. I'd suggest. Yeah. They debated about him in the House of Commons, actually. So it was very interesting. I didn't include that in the script because it would have a whole other taken story. us down yeah, a, a yeah. whole other political path. path. But he, uh, yeah, it is like, so if somebody is a psychopath, do you give them free reign to go and do what they want to do? Go to Rhodesia and fight Mugabe. Right? Strange. Very, very strange. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 202, Mad or Malingering, The Crimes of Matthew Charles Lamb. I learned what malingering meant in this episode. Well, yeah, that's good. Yep. It, we, I, I always aim to learn something new with an Always episode. learning. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Uh, let's listen to our first voicemail. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Megan, and I'm from Heartland, New Brunswick. Uh, I'm just going to say that um, I actually didn't even know that I had a hometown murder until I listened to your Benny Swim episode. Uh, where he was buried is actually two minutes from my house and we pass it every day. So uh, thank you for that episode and all the other ones you do. I've always liked the show and with all the new changes, I absolutely love it now. And uh, Matthew, I will never look at Reba McIntyre the same again. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so poor uh... oh, people, <laughs> someone came at me over Reba. 
yeah. said, yeah, Mike, you, you, you shouldn't be slapping anybody in the face. It was like, mm, I think it was Matthew. It said. was Matthew. Yeah. But and anyway. It, and hey, Heartland, I think they have like a really cool covered bridge. Oh, they, yeah, they do. There's some really interesting. I, I love those old covered yeah, bridges. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah. But uh, this is why I do dark poutine in the way that we do, um, especially because Canadians love to hear about stuff that happened in their hometown yeah. and sometimes they don't know about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I'm really glad that I could, uh, I could do that Bring for you. Bring out the dark side of Harland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the anti, anti, uh, anti-tourism board here. Oh dear. <laughs> Let's listen to another. Ah, oh, hey there, dark poutine people. This is Great Big Pete. I'm calling you from Ottawa, in Canada. I just got turned on to your podcast somehow. I don't know. I found it. I'm searching for dark stuff and poutine. Anyways, yeah, I just wanted to say that I just listened to the Are They Guilty? The Refay murder one from April 26th. And I really liked it. You guys have a really good jam. Uh, so keep it up. And, uh, oh, yeah, one last thing. Uh, go shit in your hat. Well, there you go. <laughs> Did you say his name is Great Big Pete? I think so. I want to meet him. I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. Ottawa. Yeah. That's the nation's capital. It is. Pete, go to um, the National Gallery. Yep. And a friend of mine's father is actually not hung in the National Gallery. He has a bicycle painting that they've leaned up against the wall, so it looks like a bike leaning up against the wall. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That the is National really... Gallery is really cool. I have never been. I didn't get a chance to go there. I was only in Ottawa for a day. So yeah. I did the parliament buildings and mm. uh, met some people for a cup of coffee and wow. hung out a well, little bit. So Thanks for calling, Pete. Yeah, we, exactly. We like new fans that just bump into us because yeah. they're looking for darkness and poutine. Exactly. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> if any, I wonder if anyone not knowing the show has ever typed in dark poutine on their on their browser <laughs> i don't know if they do they're gonna find us uh next up let's listen to this one hey guys this is andrew from hamilton ontario calling um i just finished listening to the halloween special of 2020 and in regards to the ouija boards i remember one time in my teenage days bringing one to a friend's house and we just got it in the door and his dad called us from work to get it out of the house. Um, <laughs> that's all. Take a shit in your hat. Take care. Bye. Yeah, some people are really afraid of Ouija boards and those kind of things, like especially specifically religious people, uh, people who have like a really strong religious belief think that it is a doorway to Satan. Well, they, We can always hope. Well, what, what did he say his name was? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> Well, Hamilton has a conservationary called the Devil's Punch Bowl. Yeah. So I think playing with Ouija boards is the right thing to do in Hamilton, yeah. Ontario. Yeah, with the Devil's Punch Board. Punch, <laughs> punch Bowl. Punch Board. Punch Board. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> my brain. My brain's not working so good, Matthew. I've been working too hard. Hmm. Ah, well. And uh, I think we have one more. Let's have a listen. Hi, my name is Mary Ellen Gadette. I'm really enjoying your Russell Williams podcast. I am from Belleville, Ontario, and I remember when uh, the court case came to our our uh, government on Belleville, Ontario courthouse. Um, very sorry for the victims. It doesn't get any easier, that's for sure. Um, and, um, 
Mike and Matt, you guys seem to complement each other. I enjoy your podcast. I've been listening for the last two years. And go shit in your toque, as our Canadians would say. Thank you. Bye now. (laughs) I like them when they're short and sweet and to the point. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Uh, It's interesting to hear from people who are from the area where stuff went down. I always love that. Absolutely. Yeah. I I get uh, emails from people once in a while uh, about that kind of stuff. And I'm always like really fascinated to hear what they have to say. And and oftentimes I think, man, I wish I had this information when I was doing the (laughs) show. That would be handy. We should, we should do an episode. We're doing a show about this. If you're from the region, call in. Then everybody goes and researches (laughs) it. Tell us if it was your brother. (laughs) But the thing with doing that is people will go and research Research it. it. And then they'll know more than I do, and yeah, I'll come off and, like a dum dum. Yeah, he won't come off like a dum dum. Well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's it for voicemails. And I'll. Now it is time for some Patreon shout outs and donut money donor shout outs. So let's get to it. First up, from Brandon, Manitoba, Bobby Pritchard. Thank you, Bobby, a new eager beaver. Uh, Thank you, Bobby. Yeah, people are uh, mentioning that uh, they're getting their stickers and stuff. I sent out stickers and magnets for $5 and above. Yeah. Did you lick the stamps yourself? Uh, (laughs) No. You oh, I was gonna say you now have Mike's I used, DNA. <laughs> I used a wet sponge. <laughs> a wet sponge. But anyway, what does Bobby Pritchard do there in Brandon, Manitoba? Works at the Art Gallery of Southwestern Manitoba. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, what kind of things are at that art I'm, gallery? I'm, I'm gonna guess paintings of polar bears, paintings of bisons, and airplanes. There you go. Why yeah. not? Uh, next we have. Diane Liebold, and she's from London, Ontario. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shout out to my homeboys and girls in London. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, Diane, tell your friends that they should all become patrons of Dark Poutine as well. Cause... Absolutely. We need more Patreons. Thank you. Yes. From London, Ontario. And Diane. what does Diane do there in London? You know a lot about London, so you're probably very familiar with what Diane does. Yeah, she works the uh, drawbridge on London Bridge. There's a drawbridge? No. (laughs) So what does she really do then? But did you know all the bridges that go over the Thames River in London, Ontario, are named after the bridges in London, England? That's kind of cool. Blackfriars Bridge. Mm -hmm. um, Not all of them, but Blackfriars Bridge, London Bridge. Yeah. I I sort of giggled to myself as I was reading about London one time and that there was a Thames River in London because uh, a killer had thrown a gun into the Thames and it was like, wait a minute, did he fly to actual London to throw his, <laughs> his gun? No, there's a river named the Thames. In... Oh, that was the, that was the, uh, the Buxbaum episode. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I was, yeah. I was a little weirded out about that. Thames one. River. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. And there's a Covent Garden as well. So what does so, Diane really do? Uh, I like to think that Diane, I'm thinking of my, my days in, in London. I think she was head of getting bands in at the bar called The Office. 
The Office? Call the Office. Oh, Call the Office. Yeah, they used to have, my brother used to play there a lot. My brother and Sarah McLaughlin used to play at Call the Office. Sarah McLaughlin and I, born in the same hospital. There you go. My, yep. She, uh, so she was really cool. So picture this, my brother's band opened for her. Mm-hmm. You know, there she is helping like take their drum kit down and putting it in the back of the van herself. Wow. Before she was like mega, mega star. Yeah. But yeah, so I think Diane worked at Call the Office and she was the, she booked the bands. She booked the bands at Call the Office. Yeah, well, right that's kind of cool. right across the street from the train station. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. Thanks, Diane. Diane. And uh, thanks to all our patrons. Let's move on to Donut Money Donors. And we have one this week. Donut. It's Cynthia Cohn. And Cynthia is from... Lincoln, Nebraska, in the United States. Lincoln? Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, I've not driven through Lincoln, Nebraska. I know uh, Nebraska is famous for corn, I do believe. Johnny Carson, if I'm correct, was from Nebraska, the late great host of The Tonight Show. Okay. I do believe. But uh, what does Cynthia do there in Lincoln, Matthew? I think she's the heiress to the Lincoln car fortune. The Lincoln, con- like Lincoln Continental yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. They are quite a uh, a think, pimpy vehicle. I think that's probably some from, I bet you there's a town in Lincoln, Michigan that is actually named after, but oh, well. just like Pontiac. But yeah, I, she's a, she's a automobile heiress. So she's just, um, she spends her time philanthropizing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. I guess if you've got to do something like that. She's independently wealthy and she's cool. Independently wealthy would be very good. Yeah. Uh, I would love for that to happen. That's why she can send us donut money. (laughs) That donut money comes from from the great Lincoln company. Yeah. Yeah. People, you know, it's it's the time of year where people are a little strapped for cash. I know I am. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I especially am. But anyway. I spent like 300 bucks on my nephew for Christmas last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of people I know are getting books and dark poutine swag. <laughs> well, I've, you know, I bought like 10 of your books. Yeah, <laughs> so I appreciate it. A lot of people, a lot of people got your books. Yeah. Hopefully they will uh, either pass them on to someone else to read after they're done or uh, maybe buy them as gifts for people for Christmas. What a great idea. Buy Mike's book for people. Just so you know, I'm signing them before I give them out. Oh, wow. <laughs> Even though I had nothing to do with your book. <laughs> so I am really actually going to have to use this I'm just this kidding. I don't for... sign them. I'm going to have to use this for next week. Oh, shit. I talked about Christmas. I'm an idiot. Let's redo it. No, we can, we can just, I can just cut that out. Okay. Sorry. It's I, all right. I forgot. I forgot. It's fine. I was, my head was on February the 10th. <laughs> I didn't listen to the instructions. It's January the 10th. January the 10th. I didn't listen to the instructions. It's okay. Okay. Uh, um, thanks to all our donut money donors. Thank and, you. And patrons past and present. You help to keep the show going. Believe me, you do. Um, you can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine for a one-time donation. You can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you haven't gotten your book yet, 
if you haven't gotten a copy of my book yet, I'd appreciate it if you did. Just buy the book. Uh, just buy the damn book. You can buy find the them book. via a link on the Dark Routine website or Amazon, Indigo, uh, wherever you buy books. Barnes and Noble, if you're in the States. Local bookshop. And Local if bookshops. It, if they don't have it, ask for it. Ask for it, they'll order it. Uh, please give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com. And most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, good eggs. Bye, good eggs. Because only good eggs listen to this show. There are no bad apples. Well, they, they very quickly bail out. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't like that show because it's woke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm woke. I'm just, I don't think I'm, I'm woke. Just, just not a dick. <laughs> well. Shut up. 100% of the time. We, all, we can be dicks. Anyway, bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.